Welcome back to another episode of Fixed. I am your host, Jessica Danielle. I have an incredible episode for you all today as you will hear from my special guest, Jenna James. Sadly, Jenna lost her oldest son, Brandon, at the young age of 21 to a fentanyl poisoning, thus giving her the title of angel mom and making her a lifelong member of a group that no mother wants to join. Today, she will be here to tell her story and share on behalf of Bam, who is described by those who knew him as a giant teddy bear with the kindest soul. I'll ask her about her fight for fentanyl awareness and the changes in legislation she helped pass. This episode honors the life of Brandon Bam Mazio, forever 21 and forever in our hearts. Okay, so welcome, Jenna. Thank you so much for being here to share and speak on behalf of your son, Bam. Um, I know that today in particular is a very special and sad day um, with a lot of meaning behind it. So thank you so much for sharing his story and for everything that you're doing to make a difference. Uh, You really are doing a lot. Thank you for having me. And I'm always happy to talk about my son. Yeah, and that's kind of actually, so I, I want to hear about him. Like, I want to hear about his, describe Bam, because I know what I have seen and heard in my perspective on videos and how goofy and sweet, but like, I want you to describe your son and who he was. So I always describe him as goofy and I always feel bad about that, but that is just what sticks out to me. He did everything with humor. He could make you laugh in like the most inappropriate times, (laughs) but you were always grateful for that. Um, I asked his friends how they would describe him because of course, as his mother, I'm a little biased and I realize they are too, but they all said the same thing. They said he was a human teddy bear. He gave the best hugs He was always the loudest person in the room. His personality was um, as big as he was, and he was fiercely loyal and protective of those that he loved. So, and that's how I see him. So it's nice to hear from them that they see him the same way that I do. Well, it's funny because I've never met him, but I have seen so many videos of him And he does. He reminds me of a goofy, big teddy bear that I just want to hug. Like, he's always smiling, always laughing, like, was just looks like the kindest soul on the planet. And I feel like the world is missing out because we need good people now more than ever. And this crisis is taking away amazing people like your son. And um, I mean, I know that you do a lot to raise awareness on this issue, which I will get to, but, um, I guess like kind of tell me his story and in your, from your perspective on, you know, his life and how this happened. So the first thing that I want to address, because I see this comment all the time on posts and awareness campaigns, people always say, teach your children better, teach them not to do drugs. And that infuriates me because I worked in pharmacy from the time I got out of high school 
until 2016. So drugs were very common in my home and talking about them. Um, I was always for medication. I saw the wonders that it could do to help people that needed it. But I also always reinforce that unless it's being prescribed to you directly, that it can be dangerous. So those comments, they just really upset me because everyone's situation is different. And of course, there are children who came from households where there was like a lot of drug use or, um, you know, the parents had issues. Traumatic, yeah. And, and But you're right. No, those comments make me so upset for all the parents that have lost their children because it every I don't know anyone that didn't experiment even like even really really you know good kids that you know or would be considered like nerdy good kids whatever everyone like at some point in time experiments maybe with something just something and that's just being a kid and that's not like it's not that you know it didn't used to be a deadly decision but today that decision is deadly you're absolutely right. Like you can't try anything anymore. And I'll give a good example. When I was very young, 16 or 17, it was right before I had Bam. Um, I had tried acid with, with one of my friends and I'm not proud of it. I don't often talk about it. It scared the hell out of me. I decided that time that that was the last time and I was never going to do it again. And a lot of kids do that but I had the option to make that decision because it didn't kill me. It just let me know that that was a path that I didn't want to go down. I've, I've tried acid one time too. That kind of stuff was not for me. Either was marijuana. Ironically, even though I later had addiction issues, I wasn't marijuana for me did the opposite of what it does. I think for a lot of other people, it made me very paranoid and uncomfortable and miserable. And so I never was into that. But opiates for me um, were kind of like the one thing that really calmed me down. And the one, it was like, I thought my golden ticket once I was prescribed them, but I was legally prescribed them and became addicted. Now the, the doctors have pulled back so much. I'm sure you're, you know all about this, but they've pulled back. So what kids are getting isn't the real thing. Right. And that is where the deadly consequences come into play because they think they're buying one Xanax or whatever, or smoking weed with their friend. And you never know what's really in anything anymore. And that is the scary part. There needs to be a healthy fear, in my opinion. I see a lot of people say that, you know, marijuana doesn't have fentanyl in it, but you have to look at it this way. If you have a dealer that is selling marijuana and fentanyl, cross-contamination is a thing. I don't know if they're purposely putting them in there, but if they have a pocket full of fentanyl and a pocket full of weed, the chances of the weed coming into contact with the fentanyl is huge. And I know mothers that have lost children from smoking marijuana. So I get so tired of people like arguing back and forth what's possible and what's not possible. Unless you've been there, you don't know. Unless it was your child that you had to bury for smoking something that killed them, you don't know. It kills me. It gives me goosebumps even hearing um, you talk about that. But pretty much what you're saying is, bam, 
definitely was raised in an environment where he knew about drugs. It wasn't that this was some, like, you weren't just, like, openly allowing him to do whatever, like what you said, a lot of parents, I mean, I can't even believe that people make the comments that they do on social media, but that is a common one that I see. I know that's not the case in your case. Right. So I'll start off with Bam's story. Um, the very beginning, because I think that's important. I had Bam when I was 17 years old, it was two weeks before my 18th birthday. So I was young and we really grew up together having him force me to become responsible and it it forced me to to be what he needed and at the same time he was exactly what i needed um he gave me purpose he is why i started working in pharmacy um i wanted a great dependable job and i wanted something i could be proud of um yeah. And him as a child, he was like a little adult. He didn't want to hang around other kids. He wanted to be with the adults. He was giggly. He was happy. He was always a smiling child. And that led up, you know, to him being an adult. He got a job at 17. He worked very hard. Um, his first job was at Buffalo Wild Wings, which we ended up working together there. Um for many years before he passed. He graduated high school while working. He had goals and he worked hard for them. Um, by 2020, he had gotten his own place. He had a very serious girlfriend. She became his fiance and they wanted to live together. So that is something that I encouraged, even though that they, they were young, I wanted them to be responsible adults. So I was all for it. Right. And if he's like working and holding down a job and, you know, I, I worked at Hooters through college. So, I mean, you know, I'm all for Buffalo Wild Wings. I bet <laughs> I'm all for it. You know, it taught he, responsibility. And he was great with stuff that I'm not like that child could save money and hold on to it. Um, he he wanted a brand new car. He got a brand new car. And I think it was 2019, maybe the beginning of 2020, he bought a Honda Civic. And that car is important because that car is the one that he crashed on the day that he admitted to me what he was struggling with. And I think to, to get to that point, I want to say that his, his engagement crumbled. There was some infidelity in the relationship um, and his heart was broken and he ended up living in that apartment that they had together on his own. And the depression kind of started there with that. But right after that, his stepbrother from his dad's marriage, um, a previous marriage, passed away in Florida and it was an oh. overdose. Oh, I God. don't know a hundred percent if it was fentanyl. That's not something that the family has ever shared with me, but Bam took that really, really hard. He blamed himself. He knew that his stepbrother was struggling with addiction and he felt that he could have been a better support system for him. So 
and just that he just, had a lot of stuff going he had his world kind of came crashing down it sounds like all at once correct. and he used or he turned to something else even momentarily for a coping mechanism which is so common and should not be judged in any way um but yeah continue with what you were saying well i think a lot of addiction stems from mental health yeah if you have something going on and you don't know how to make yourself feel better i'm not saying that it's the right thing to do but it's common it's what people do i mean even people who go to a doctor and get medication for depression they're looking for something um they just find it a different way than some people do. And Bam had a very close friend of his that had been struggling off and on with addiction. I was well aware of it because my son talked to me about everything. We were very close. And he had let me know that this friend, you know, had problems and he was working with him because he didn't want to see him die. He didn't want to see him go through what he was going through. There were times where the friend would come and stay on his couch for a few days to try to sober up or if he got in a fight with his family or anything bad that was happening in his life, Bam tried to be a support system. And unfortunately, that is where Bam got what he thought was Percocet. He got it from that friend. And I I don't know 100% what caused him to go from trying to save his friend to doing it with him, but I do believe it was the depression that he was going through and the big moment. I mean, everything, in my opinion, every person that I've known that's like even reached out for something like that, you know, I mean, experienced some sort of trauma and like he had just lost the love of his life his you know stepbrother his wrecked his car I mean like these things like I mean he probably it it, it just he was wanting to feel better well let's let's get to that the part where he wrecked his car because that's where I found out what was going on so right before he wrecked his car in September he had asked me to move home. We were still working at Buffalo Wild Wings together. He was a cook and I'm a bartender there. Um, So he had asked me if he could come home and we talked about it, but I wanted him to, to be self-supportive. You know, I had him at a young age and he had already been on the road to starting a family. So my thought process was you're doing okay you have money in the bank, which he did. He had a good savings still. You have a new car. You have your own place. Keep it. Keep fighting for that independence because that's going to help you in the long run. That was my mental process there. And also when he lived at home, you know, he didn't do his dishes and his room was always messy. So the mom and me was like, oh, I don't want to start cleaning up after him again. <laughs> Understandable. Um, Understandable. But I had told him no, and that month is when he started from what he told me and from what I could see in his phone. But on Halloween, we had plans to spend the day together. He had taken his brother trick-or-treating every year for Aiden's entire life. So this year was not going to be any different. He was going to drive up and spend Halloween with us. Is that the video that I have of him with Aiden or no? Was that for Yes. The one where he's like saying this kid is 
Yeah, he's not like, saying trick or treat. Yes, yes. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah that was that day. Okay. But he called me in the morning and he's like, hey, I'm bored. Do you mind if I come early? And of course I said, come on over. You know, we're not doing anything. We're just sitting here. And about 30 to 45 minutes after that call, he calls me again. And when I pick up the phone, he is in hysterics. He is scream crying. And of course I go on high alert. You know, what happened? What's going on? And he had wrecked his car. He had rear-ended a pickup truck going 45 miles an hour. Mm -hmm. And he said he was okay, but just by the panic in his voice, I got in my car and I raced to him. Mm -hmm. Um, When I got there, the car was totaled and he was a mess. He was okay. He had like a burn on his arm. The other people were okay. But he got in my car and just completely broke down. Um... He, he was upset with himself because he, he was so proud of that car. It was brand new and he felt like he didn't have much in life since losing his brother and losing his fiance. And he just felt that he had let himself down. And he's like, mom, since September, I have been taking Percocets with my friend. I don't know why I started doing it, but. I feel like it's becoming an issue because it's something I feel like I need to do now where in the beginning it was just for fun. And that rocked me because I did not expect it. You had no idea. No, no. And people say, you know, there's signs with addicts and maybe there is after a certain point. After a certain point, but not in the very, very beginning. And not if he was living with you, if he was like fresh, fresh, like, two months that's really if you if it they might have been actual Percocets in the beat you know I mean I don't know it takes a minute to I I was a functioning addict that saw my family all the time and the only time that they ever noticed or would call me out on weird behavior was actually when I was withdrawing um they had become so like my normal was me being high. They had no idea. So when I was withdrawing, they always thought I was high, which it was really the opposite, but you don't start to even notice stuff like that until it takes a minute, you know? Yeah. And once he told me, that's when I started looking for things like his work. Um, He had just switched jobs right before he was working for a flooring company He had gotten a really great job that he was really proud of. And I didn't see any issues with his work. He was always on time. He went above and beyond. Um, I checked his bank accounts then. He still had a great savings. There was no signs of it being bad, but he felt that it was bad enough that he had to tell me. So we made the decision that day because he was asking for help to help him. Um, We canceled his lease. He had just renewed it for another year. The month before we went in and we canceled it. Um, His car was totaled. So he stayed from October 31st till November 11th with my mother because she stays home all day and she had a car that he could use going back and forth to work. He didn't move in with us until November 11th when he went to Honda and bought a 2021 Accord, which is the one that I drive now. And I remember that day that he got it because 
he had already moved his stuff into our house, but that was the first day that he stayed the night. And when he pulled up that night, he was so excited. I kept the video doorbell cam of him, like just walking up to the house with this huge grin on his face. He was so excited and so proud of himself because he felt like he was making what's the word that I'm losing for looking for making progress. Like he felt like, you know, he was, he felt, yeah, he was proud of himself. I mean, he like, yeah, I can imagine. I mean, yeah, that's a big deal. It was a very big deal to him. And those few days, because I only had a few days with him after that. He moved in the 11th and he passed around 2 a.m. on the 16th. So those days haunt me because they were beautiful days. We laughed, we joked. I knew that we were going to have to have the conversation about where to go from here with the Percocets that he was taking but I didn't want to rush into it. I didn't want him to to feel attacked and to feel shut down. And that's something I'll regret for the rest of my life. But again, the I don't behavior... think that was the wrong decision. I, I think he would have. I mean, I don't think I really don't think it would have necessarily changed anything. But he was like so happy. Who wants to crush that at that point? Right. Like you'd watched him very depressed for a minute now and he was happy so of course uh, it just makes sense to me and that's exactly how I felt um so the night before that he died we had a wonderful evening I was home that day he came home I am not a good cook, so I don't cook often, but the few (laughs) things that I do cook, I think I do well. And I made dinner that night and we sat down and we ate it and he just busted jokes the whole time. Like if Nana could see me eating your food now, she'd be like, what the heck? (laughs) (laughs) And we watched a lot. And me too. It was funny. We watched a lot on our phones, um, like sending each other stupid videos and just being goofy and playing around and talking and I had to work a mid shift the next day and I like sleep. So around 10 or 11, I had kissed him goodnight and he went upstairs to play video games with my husband in the loft. They're both PC gamers and they sat up together for a few hours doing that. I think Ruben um, came down to bed around 1am and had kissed him goodnight. And the only thing that was off that night is when we were downstairs in the kitchen, Bam looked exhausted. Like he was a little, you know, when you're excessively tired, like you're yeah. standing there and you're rocking a little side to side. Well, looking yeah, back, it's nodding off probably. Yeah. 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 So looking back, I can see it for it, what it was. But that night I asked him about it and he's like, oh, I've been having to leave super early to get to work since moving to South Carolina and it's just catching up with me. And that seemed like a good reason to me. So I let it go. But Ruben had kissed him goodnight about 1 a.m. And I can only assume he came into his room and took a pill before he laid down. I 
my husband and my son got up early the next morning and went off to middle school and work. And I woke up around nine. And the first thing I do in the mornings is I go into the front room of my house, which is a bedroom for my birds. They have their own place (laughs) and it outlooks the front yard and the driveway. So I'm in there feeding them. And I just glance out the window and I see his Accord still in the driveway. And I'm like, what the hell? He should have left for work. He usually leaves around eight. And here it is, you know, after nine. Yeah. So I'm annoyed at this point. I'm like upset that he's being irresponsible and oversleeping, which he hasn't done in a long time. Um, So I kind of like stomp up the stairs with a little attitude. But as I enter the hallway, there's like a long hallway to his bedroom door. I just get this weird feeling. Mm. Um, Can't explain it. Don't know what it is, but it just felt like dread. My chest was very tight and very heavy. And I get up to his door and I knock because he's a young man. Sometimes he doesn't sleep with any clothes on and I didn't want to embarrass him or myself. Of course. So I knock And when he doesn't answer, all of that little bit of dread that I was feeling just becomes this heavy, heavy weight. And I squeeze the door open. And he had been, I'm assuming he had been on the edge of his bed, but he had slid down to the floor next to his bed. He had one arm. I'm trying not to get upset, but I know I'm going to happen. No, it's okay. So he had one arm across his chest and the other one was outstretched towards his closet. And I knew immediately when I laid eyes on him, um, you know what lividity is? Uh, yeah. When the, when the blood drains down to, so, so he would have been like more white on the top. Correct. Is that like, right. And the bottom of his arm that was outstretched, I could see the blood pooling. It was purple there. Um, So my eyes immediately went to his face and he had a little bit of foam coming out of his mouth and like a little droplet of blood coming out of his nose. So I just remember screaming to the point that I'm like howling. It didn't sound human. And I don't know how I got down the stairs. I, I remember getting to the bottom and all my dogs are on the floor cowering because they don't know what's going on. I'm terrifying them. I had to run to my bedroom to get my phone and call 911. And I immediately ran back up the stairs to him. And I don't know how she understood anything that I was saying, but she tried to, to walk me through resuscitation. And I just kept telling her it's too late. It's too late. Um, I tried to move his arm that was across his chest. And that's when I knew for sure, without a doubt, that it was too late. He was ice cold. Mm. And there was there was no way. There was no way that I could help him. Um, I ran outside. I put my dogs away. And then I ran outside. I opened up the front door for the emergency services. And then I went back up. And I hung up with her. I called my husband and he he told me later that he had no idea what I was saying. He just knew that he had to come home. So he had to drive home 
knowing that something really bad had happened, but having no idea what it was. I sat with his body. I think it took nine minutes for them to get here. And that has left me with this huge trigger with ambulances. Um, I'm getting better, but like whenever they drive by, I immediately burst out in tears because the first thing I think of is, are they going somewhere where they can't do anything? Mm. Somebody sitting next to a body waiting for them. And it sounds silly, but it it's happened ever since that day. When they finally got here, I ran down and the first thing I told them, which is etched in my memory, is I think he's gone. Um, that That's on the video. So you yeah. have your ring camera video that... Um, pretty much captures a lot of it and it's very 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 hard to watch um and and that is the first thing you said and I just like uh I I mean there's not even yeah I don't I don't even I can't imagine I can't even it's just every mom's worst fear that you had to go through and then to have that in, like that image in your mind that's got to be something that you know you're it's going to be hard to get through that but I know that you and I have talked for quite some time now and I know that that it pains never going to go away but you um, are doing things in his honor and sharing his story and keeping his memory alive and everything that you are doing he would be so so proud of I hope so. It was really hard to go through um, that video footage. I didn't do it right away. It took me some time before I could stomach it. Um, but I wanted people to to see the reality of what we went through. Even if it just helps one person, just one, that would be enough to have to relive it. And that's one thing, that image, when I, when I first tried to sleep after his passing, the moment that I would close my eyes, I would see him and I would sit straight up in bed and I would just stare at the ceiling because I was so afraid to close my eyes again. I know. Um, now, w- one of the things um in the video is it shows them like like putting him in the car um do you was your husband home yet had he made it back yet yes so to continue continue the story when the ambulance got here i don't know what i expected but what happened was definitely not it they followed me into the room and then they backed out. They didn't even touch him. Um, I expected them to get down with him and at least try to resuscitate him. But they knew, just like I did the moment of looking at him, that there was no hope. They didn't even attempt to. They called the coroner right away. And this all happened um, around 930 to 945. My husband got home while he was still here. 
the corner. I don't think the corner had gotten here yet. So he he came up to the house and knew that it wasn't like it, he thought maybe an animal had died or gotten hurt um, because I would probably react pretty similar. That's how I feel about my animals. I would scream and cry. But when he pulled up and saw the ambulance and the sheriff and everything, he was absolutely terrified. He didn't know what he was walking into. Um, and I had to sit down and I had to call his father in Florida and tell him. And his reaction was the same as mine, just guttural screams the moment he was able to process it. Well, um, and now knowing that he had lost his other child. Right. Right. Yeah. He lost two boys six months apart. Oh, God. Um, mm-hmm. The coroner, when they came in, you know, I wasn't allowed to go back up into the room once the ambulance, you know, pronounced him dead and the sheriff was brought in. So I sat down in the living room while they were upstairs with him. Um, and they made me go out back when they were going to bring him downstairs because they didn't think that I could handle that. And they're probably right. I don't think I could have. So I just remember sitting on the ground in my backyard with my husband thinking, I've got to go to school and pick up his, his little brother who was 13 at the time and tell him what happened, which was another devastating blow because I you know, you don't know how your children are going to take it. Um, and I had to tell his family, you know, other family and friends. I did that in a way that I regret to this day because I was such in shock. I just basically posted on Instagram that I lost my son today and <sighs> needed prayers. So that's how his a lot of friends found out. So his phone, I could hear his phone all morning while the police and coroner were up here going off, going off, going off. I had to call his work and let them know that he had passed away. There's just so many things you don't think about having to do, you know? Yeah, I can't. Um, I, I, yeah, I just can't. And, um, and then I just like, I just always like wonder like when those people all leave like at first like when he leaves like like I just can't even fathom as a mom especially like I I relate to you in the sense that my son saved my life and your son gave you purpose you know and and I just I just feel like I just would be like I just don't like what do you even do like how do you even I just don't even know it's probably just like like uh, like almost like a machine like you just one foot in front of the other and have no like I don't know and I like I I don't I don't know but I can't imagine I was at the funeral home that day um because I had to do something or I was going to go insane so within maybe an hour or two of them loading him up into the van I was at a funeral. I was making arrangements. I was picking his casket. I was deciding, you know, if we were going to have a viewing and how we were going to do it. And I wanted his funeral to happen 
as quickly as possible because I wanted to have the option of viewing and I wanted him to be in the best shape possible. But I also had to wait for an autopsy because when a 21 year old dies suddenly in his room, of course you're going to have an autopsy. I was very lucky that in the County that I'm in, it happened very quickly. His body was released to the funeral home, I think the next day. And so from Tuesday to Friday, which is when we had his funeral, I had a lot to do. I had a lot of planning. I was able to care for him still, you know, by planning this and making sure that everyone knew and that it was going to be perfect. Cause I had never been to a funeral in my family before I've been to friends funerals, but my family didn't have them. So my first experience with an actual funeral was for my child. And that was insane to me. It's not it supposed me to be busy. like that. And it's, it's not supposed to be like that. And I think that's why it's so important that, like, I can't, I can, I talk to you quite a bit, but obviously, like, li- reliving these details, I mean, I can't imagine how hard it is for you because this is, like, I can hear it in your voice and from knowing you and talking to you about, you know, other things, I can just hear the pain. But what I will say is that other parents need to understand that pain. And every time that you do share, you're making not only BAM proud, but you're like, I I know that it, if a mom listens to this and hears that pain, there's, they surely surely they will have a talk with their kid about fentanyl you would you would think that I mean I would just assume that no mom in their right mind if they're aware of this which there are still a lot of people that aren't aware I mean was that their was that your initial thing did you think like what did you think when you saw him foaming at the mouth with blood I thought it was the Percocet to be honest because fentanyl I had heard of it of course, in pharmaceutical terms, I sold pharmaceutical pharmaceutical fentanyl, um, but that's a completely different beast. It is not illicit fentanyl, um, or it's not pharmaceutical grade fentanyl that is killing people. Right. So my first thought was somehow he overdosed on Percocet, which is not an easy thing to do. So my mind was spinning, but the coroner, when she was here immediately suspected fentanyl and put that in my head. So I didn't know until three months later when the toxicology came back, but she said to me, this is what we're seeing every day in this County and all across the Carolinas. I can't tell you for sure until we test it, but this is what I think it is. And then she also said, you need to go through his room with gloves on. And you need to clean the surfaces because we don't know if there's any residue up there that is potentially harmful to you and your family. Well, yeah. And someone that doesn't have a tolerance, that's the biggest thing. Like that's why so many kids are dying. Cause it's so yeah. Whenever you talk about pharmaceutical fentanyl, pharmaceutical fentanyl has been around for a very long time. And it's used mostly as an anesthetic to, like, knock you out, like, 
before a surgery or something like that, or for very severe pain patients. But then only recently was man-made fentanyl put into all of this stuff. And it's because it's cheap, easy. This, I mean, the supply, if you're man-making it, it's not like heroin where there's where it's literally coming from a plant, like you can make infinite amounts of fentanyl and a tiny bit goes a long way. But if you're giving it to someone that has no tolerance to opiates, then they can't handle it. And it's not being made by scientists. It's being made in backyards and in gross, I mean, in kitchens, like it's, it's awful. It's terrible. It's killing a generation. Absolutely. It is. Cause you, the way that I understand it is you have somebody buying a pill press on Amazon and they have fentanyl in powder form and they're taking whatever they use to bind it and they're putting it in this pill press and they're putting what they believe is the correct amount of fentanyl in there and then pressing it. Well, they're not scientists. They have no idea what they're doing. The first pill that they press couldn't have just enough to get you high. And the second pill that they press can have a little too much. And the third one can, can be 100% fentanyl because they weren't paying attention and sprinkled a lot in there. So you never know. And Bam, his toxicology report said he had 7.7 nanograms per ml. That's not a high dose. I've seen other toxicology reports from other parents where the amount is insane. It's like 42 nanograms per ml. That's the difference in these pills. It's crazy. Well, and also that goes back to kind of what we hit on earlier, which was that he more than likely was not very far along in his addiction, with even with Percocets, if that amount of fentanyl was capable of doing that to him so you know I just I mean I don't know that that brings comfort I know the word so um you do a lot of fentanyl awareness and I know that you're like I and I actually want to ask you about that I know you and your other son Aiden just went to the fentanyl rally in Washington DC um you spread you know information and you share the story to try to help other kids and make parents aware and whatnot but I want you to kind of tell me what you're doing now and like what like has that helped you in terms of moving forward yeah so the best way to describe it would be after the funeral when everything was said and done the void that I felt the emptiness the darkness in my life was debilitating. I remember Thanksgiving sitting at my kitchen table while families are celebrating and eating together and just crying. I couldn't eat. I had family send food, you know, had a caterer come and bring us food and I couldn't even eat it. I was just devastated. And I lived like that for months and months until one day I ran into another mom wearing a t-shirt that says fentanyl kills you talk about it. And that opened up the conversation. We stood in the middle of a restaurant crying and talking about our losses and how we didn't want other people suffering like this. Um, So the best way it's been said to me is 
Bam's death gave me a purpose. Whatever purpose he had in life, he finished his and handed off it to me. I started living again when I started talking about it. And it wasn't an easy decision because there's so much stigma attached to these deaths. People automatically think addicts, junkies, horrible things. And they don't think that these are people too with families and people that love them. So I was terrified to tell his story for him to be put down and to be looked down on. But if I didn't do it, how many more funerals would I have to go to in his friend's group alone? Um, If they didn't know what killed them if I didn't say, hey, this was a fentanyl poisoning and I just let them believe that it was COVID or something else. How many, so many more parents, are die? So many families do that. That's the shocking part is I know someone recently in my friend group that I grew up with and it said, um, and I, I mean, it was told, passed along to me, but I mean, I, I knew instantly what, what it was because I grew up with this person, but um, in, it, it was explained as an unexpected death and that was it. And it was like very hush hush and a lot. And I give you so much credit for doing that. Other families are starting to do that. Like, even if you, um, like people are putting fentanyl, you know, in obituaries because they want to raise awareness there at the end of, you know, the, the obituary, they'll ask for donations to, uh, I don't know, treatment facilities or awareness groups or whatever. And I mean, that takes, that is so strong and so brave of you, but, but that is the right move because there's still so many people that are not willing to even admit it. Right. And so many people who still don't know what it is, which I encounter almost every day. Um, besides going to Washington And the awareness campaigns where we stand on street corners and hold signs of our loved ones and talk to people about it. I try to do something every day. I have so many t-shirts that say, you know, fentanyl kills you, talk about it, or fentanyl awareness. I have quite a bit and I wear them on my days off. And when I do work, I wear a button that says end fentanyl deaths now just to open the conversation And I'm surprised still by how many people ask me what that is. And I'm like, are you living under a rock? But I'm not mean about it. I'm happy to educate them. I'm happy to to make them aware. Because you, if you're ignorant to it, if you don't know about it, how can you avoid it? Right, right. And and to me... It, and you it because we are like so engulfed in it I, I I've seen a lot of people die from it I worked in treatment in California after getting sober myself that was like the number one thing at the time that people were in there for they would leave and we would hear about our clients dying or relapsing and dying and um that was something that was like very talked about out there but then I moved to conservative East Texas and I've literally thought about making videos of me asking people, hey, do you know about fentanyl? Do you know about the fentanyl crisis? And, I, and it would be a really interesting thing to do because around here it is not talked about the same way. And it really all, I mean, it, it is maybe in like Dallas and other metropolitan areas, 
But like, really, there are a lot of people that don't know about it, which is why the work you're doing is so important. Thank you. Thank you. We have one of the moms in my area started um, a group that I'm a part of, which is called FKU, Fentanyl Kills You. And it's now become a 5013C organization. We have a website. We are the group that goes out and stands on the street corners with our signs. Um, And doing that has opened up so many opportunities for us. We were in North Carolina one day on the side of the road holding those signs. And a guy that owns a driving school stopped and said, hey, I have a bunch of teenagers. I do a drug and alcohol alcohol course for their um, for their driver's license thing that they have to do, would you want to come in and talk to these kids about fentanyl? We'll give you the floor and you can tell them your stories, educate them. And of course we jumped on it. We do that once a month. I um, love that. Also in the local high school, we speak to the health class there and just doing that has opened up the school to contacting us about doing middle school and elementaries too. So the doors just keep opening for us to spread awareness. I really love that um, because the stigma, the stigma, well, I know stigma played a huge role in like pretty much every aspect of my addiction from the moment that I realized I had an addiction and I just like turned left instead of facing people that I knew were going to judge me because they, that's just not something that you do that was acceptable. And so I just like left. And then once I finally like got sober, it took me a very long time to be willing to speak out about it. And do I think my, my family and, and whatnot, do I know they're proud of me now? Absolutely. Um, but it is more of like my mission Um, but that was very hard. And I, I think that it's becoming better thanks to people like you and you did just get a, uh, the law in South Carolina. So you guys just did something big out there where I don't know, explain it in a little bit more detail. Okay. So South Carolina did not have any trafficking laws on the books with fentanyl. It was a newer drug. It wasn't something that they had addressed and, not just our group, um, a bunch of moms on their own or other groups that have formed to raise fentanyl awareness started going to Columbia last January, um, going to the Senate and House meetings, contacting Senate and House, trying to get a law passed because North Carolina has a trafficking law. So what we were seeing was, since I live right on the border, drug dealers were just coming across the border to sell in our area in South Carolina, because if they got busted with five or 5,000 pills, it was a slap on the wrist. There wasn't any time done. They got, they got arrested and got right back out. And that's insane to us. So we fought really hard to get a trafficking bill um, passed. And we went there, we held signs, we talked to everybody we could, and they finally did it this June. The governor signed into effect um, a trafficking law here in South Carolina where if you're caught with more than four grams, it's an automatic seven years. And then if you're caught with more than 14, it's an automatic 20. They're not playing anymore. You come to our state, 
you get caught, you're doing time. Was it 20 or 25? For some reason, I thought it was 25. Is it not? It, it might 20? be 25. I, we'll no, I think, it, I know, I honestly, yeah, we will. But I think it was 20. I think it was 25, which I mean, regardless, yeah, that you guys aren't messing around. And that, see, that's like real scare tactics. And there should be healthy, well, there should be a healthy fear from every kid in that age group that would be experimenting to not do it. But then any dealer should be scared out of their mind to mess with fentanyl. And that you're killing your, you're killing these kids. You're not getting them high. You're not making money. You are leaving death in your wake. That's it. And I mean, that's what you're doing. Not every, I know that like not every case results in prosecution, which is, I think every that is, and I think every single death case should result in automatic prosecution or attempt. You know, you have to find these people, but most of the time, they're it's cell phone records, and it's not that hard, honestly, um, to track. I mean, because the person you have to remember, and this is why I tell everyone: no matter if it was an accidental overdose or whatever you want to call it by an addict or someone that wasn't an addict that was experimenting. Um, You know, the word poisoning is very prominent. I think either way I would consider it to be a poisoning because I promise you as a previous addict, I never didn't want to wake up. I wanted to get high. So even if I would have like, if I thought I was getting $20 of, you know, heroin and it turned out to be a deadly amount of fentanyl like would I have was that what I was wanting no and I didn't know that that was what was in there then that's a poisoning and I think every single death from fentanyl should result in an automatic prosecution or at least an investigation I agree and my son's case unfortunately was not investigated at all um they took his phone the day that they took his body and I sent them the passcode to get in. And four weeks later, I had been hounding them to get the phone back. And they brought me the phone and said, I'm sorry, we couldn't get into it. I opened the evidence bag that it was in, put in the code that I had sent them and got right in. So it was obvious to me that they didn't take it seriously. They were never going to do anything with it because they had the tools to do it. Um, And that was devastating to them. My son was just, just another death to an overdose, which he was not. And they didn't, they didn't care. They did not care, which is breaks my heart. I know. I, I, and I mean, working in, um, any of these like healthcare industries, I know that there's gotta be a level of like, you see it so much, you kind of become, I don't know, unattached, maybe even a little jaded. But like, as a cop, it is your job to whether or not, like, it is your job to hold people responsible. And if you have the ability to do so, that's what you do. And it just doesn't seem that that seems so easy to me that I, I don't even, you know, I don't know. But I mean, I am so proud of you for everything that you've done. Your organization's name is um, uh, Fentanyl Kills You, FKU. Right. What's the website? 
it's fentanyl kills you with just a U, not a Y-O-U. And the website is fentanylkillsyou.org. Okay. And then the last thing I want to leave you with um, before we wrap this up is I know that one of Bam's good friends um, wrote an amazing song, which I've heard called Death, or I'm sorry, called Till Death. And his name is Brandon uh, Desenza. Is that correct? Am I saying that right? Correct. Yes. Okay. So I'm going to, you guys, after the conclusion of this episode, um, or as soon as me and her are done, I'm going to let you hear that song in full. It is, he's amazing. And it's a beautiful tribute to your son. And I just. Didn't make me cry. I know. It really, it's so, I loved it. I loved every minute of it. And um, that deserves to get hurt as well. So, I mean, is there anything I left out that you want anyone to know about your son or your story or any, is there anything that you feel needs to be said? The only thing I really want people to understand is um, I'm doing this for you. Um, I'm putting my pain, my hurt, whatever on the line to make sure that nobody else suffers what we're suffering. Our family has been devastated and broken and it's not easy to tell his story. Um, it's, it's hard. It's hard on me. And that's the reason that I'm doing it because I don't want any other mother to suffer the way that I have suffered in losing Bam. He was an amazing, amazing human being. And we that miss shows him. through in every, I don't even know him. And I can just tell I would have like loved him. <laughs> it shows through in every video, every piece of content, every photo. Like, I mean, he, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm proud of you. He would be, I guarantee you, he is smiling down, looking on you and he is just so proud of his mom. And I guarantee you that. Thank you. Thank you for this opportunity and those kind words. Of course. And I love you dearly. And I'm, um, I know that, um, everyone else is with me when I say we offer you our deepest condolences, although that's not going to bring your son back, but hearing, your story I hope it really resonates with some parents and if it creates conversation then that is what it's meant to do so thank you again and uh, stay tuned you guys immediately following this I'm going to play Till Death by Brandon Desenza and it is in honor and in memory of Brandon Bam Anthony Mazio, 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 <laughs> forever 21, forever in our hearts. And um, yeah, thank you so much again. And here is the song. Don't know how to feel Is this even real? Following the footsteps that let me hear Could you take me back? Yeah, back in the day When I confide in a safe space 
With you right here next to me Cause you died, I died When you died, I died When you died, I died When you died, I died Like where did the time fly? Couple years in my mind Haven't felt a second wind for me to get the fuck out where I've been Patience running thin Hey, you know where that I've been Back then Just wondering if you've been Watching From up above I hope that you've been staying close The dozy dozy holds me wrong to find the darkest corner to call Cause when you died, I died 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 Like where did the time fly? Couple years in my mind Felt a sinking wind For me to get the fuck out where I've been As always, thank you guys so much for tuning in to another episode of Fixed. This one was pretty raw and tough, and some of them will be, some of them won't be, but this is a message that needs to be heard. So I hope you listened. I hope you liked it. And all of her information and her organization, Fentanyl Kills You, is on the description in this episode. Um, Stay tuned for next week. And as always, love you all and thank you.